Hello everyone, I'm Yusli from Belgium and the reason why I do love Braille is because I do remember the spelling of certain words which I would otherwise forget very easy. Braille makes me a better writer. I find I can work in more detail when working with Braille just because I find it easier to read things with my hands and also because of how things like punctuation are presented so briefly. My Braille related memory was that when I learned to read Braille properly, the first thing I read was the poem called A Catechism of Polish Child, Claudia from Stockholm Trent. Hello from New Zealand, my name is Julie Woods and in 2001 I learnt Braille as a 35 year old adult. I fell in love with it so much, I now have a dream to write the names of one million people in Braille. My name is Kevin and Braille is important to me because it teaches you how to spell, how words are written and sentences composed, which will really help for your future education and career. Hello, my name is Rahel Fletcher and I go to New College Worcester. I read and write in Braille. Braille is very important to me. I use it to read and write books, to learn languages and to access the world around me. It is the most important but special thing in my life. Braille is super important to use in everyday life, from knowing where you're going, to reading government documents and also even helping during meetings for employment. For me, Braille is important because it gives literacy and independence. From simple things like labelling a CD, right the way through to advanced mathematics or learning a piece of music, it's all available in these amazing six dots. Braille is very important to me because it's my primary reading medium and I don't have to constantly go back and check how things are spelt. I was privileged to start learning Braille when I was three and I've used Braille to read and memorise music, to read in new languages, to make sense of maths at school, to take notes in class, to prompt myself during presentations, uh, to type with Braille screen input on my phone and much more. I've been a Braille reader since I was two years old. I can't imagine what it would have been like to grow up without the pleasure of opening a book and really getting to enjoy that in the way I do with Braille. Hello everyone and welcome to our first event of the new year. We as the Braillist Foundation are really really excited to welcome you to 2021 and also to our event for World Braille Day where we celebrate Louis Braille and the contribution he gave to us as blind people with the reading and writing code Braille. So today we're going to chat to a few people who use Braille in their lives, particularly in their careers or studies. And we're going to talk about how Braille has benefited them and how Braille may be of use to the blind community in future, because there's lots of conversations that take place around, well, how relevant is Braille now? We have technology. Do blind people even still use it? And we really want to talk about that and, and look forward to where Braille may develop in future. On our panel today, we have Saima Akhtar. Saima is a recent university graduate and she used Braille very heavily at university and will be able to talk 
more about her experiences with that. We also have Gary O'Donoghue, who is political correspondent for the BBC. He spends much of his time out in the United States, which I'm sure is very interesting given the political situation over there, certainly at the moment. And we also have Dr. Fred Reed, who was head of the history department at the University of Warwick and who is also a Braille user. So we have an interesting group of people and I just want to say thank you to all of you for joining us. So I think start with, it might be good to get our panel as it were to talk a bit about themselves, maybe just in two or three sentences. So I'm going to call on each panelist kind of individually to introduce themselves, maybe and say what they would like to share about themselves as opposed to what I've shared. So can I start with Saima? Hi, um, I'm Saima. I've graduated with an English literature and creative writing degree and the plan is to go into teaching. And I genuinely don't think I would have got through my degree without Braille. That's great. And Gary? Uh, I'm Gary O'Donoghue. Uh, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist all my working career. Um, I uh, use Braille every day. Uh, like Simon, I don't think I could do what I do uh, without Braille. And I've, I started learning it when I was eight years old, having been partially sighted up to that point and started off learning print. And I found that the way I use Braille has evolved quite significantly in the last, I'd say, 10 or 20 years, which maybe we can talk about as, as a sort of way, a combination skill with with uh, speech output and using it in different ways. But it is, um, to me, it's essential. Well, thank you. And we'll definitely talk about that some more. And do we have Fred? Yes, I'm here, Chair. Um, I'm Fred Reed. Um, I'm ancient. I'm 84, nearly. Never thought I'd live to this age. Went blind when I was 14 and learned Braille at that time was dependent on Braille for my early education and, uh, yes, my early education until I went really to university. After that, a bit like Gary, I started using readers reading print to me in combination with Braille because there weren't many Braille texts in relation to history, which I was studying. And then uh, I got a job at Warwick University in 1966. Braille was extremely important for lecturing. It's very, it's practically the only way I think that you can use lecture notes, um, certainly if you're doing any extensive quotation. Uh, and then the digital revolution came in for me in the 90s, really. I was familiar with it, of course, before that, but it became effective for me in the 90s. And since then, Braille has dropped a long way down in the in my access to information, mainly for the reason that I'm not a quick bear reader, and I think that's one of the things you might discuss is why the reading speeds vary so greatly. I never get much above 90 words a minute, and I'm far below that now. Um, and for that reason, I've made much more use of uh, digital technology for access to information because I can listen to stuff at about 350 words a minute quite easily so there's a big imbalance there but I still greatly value Braille I call it auxiliary Braille in my case. Yeah I think many of us probably can tell stories about that how you know Braille is something that 
complements what we do or we use it in conjunction with other things. And I think that's important to acknowledge that whilst Braille is vital in many ways, it's not the only tool we have and, and that is something you know, important. So I guess my first question to our group is how do you use Braille currently if you're using it right now? So I know particularly both Simon and Gary said they can't do what they do without Braille. So how, how are you using Braille presently? And I don't know who we want to start with. Do we perhaps want to start with Simon to talk a bit about university? Well, um, like other people have said, it's certainly not the only way to access information and you do definitely need other ways of accessing information. And I think, you know, speech software was incredibly important as well in terms of accessing lecture notes and things like that. But the reason I say I really couldn't do what I did without Braille was because I used it as a form of just kind of being able to read back over what I'd written. So a lot of my course was essay based because, you know, being English literature, it was all just essays and it was important for me to have that to be able to actually physically read it back rather than hear it back because I think you even you know in terms of spelling which other people have talked about um, you're able to pick up on things a lot more accurately um, than you would with um, say speech um, so I think for that reason it was important and also I felt like I think the use of technology alone can exclude you so you know, think in terms of um, you're in a seminar and you're asked to read a piece of text. Well, you can't do that if you've just got technology, no Braille, because it's the technology reading it. So you get left out. Um, and I think that can exclude you in a way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like both of the things you've said about having access to the actual text itself in terms of things like punctuation, but also being able to read out loud. And I think whilst it's possible to read from a screen reader you've got to have your headphones in and things like that and perhaps reading from braille is more sociable and gives you that access to the classroom environment which is definitely something important to acknowledge and what about for you gary because you said you use braille in your job as a journalist yeah so i use braille uh, a lot for for reading out what I would call scripts or tracks, which are effectively pieces of writing that I've done quite short in many cases for news bulletins of 40 or 45 seconds long and going into a, a studio, usually printing them off. If I, well, when I, when we were working in the office, printing them off on an embosser, taking it into the studio, studio, ringing up London and reading it so it can be recorded in London, then played out a news bulletin. And I do various <clears throat> sort of versions of that, sometimes longer pieces of a minute or two minutes, uh, sometimes uh, television, what we call a television track, which is when you hear a reporter doing the voiceover for a, a piece on the television, that's him or her sitting in an edit suite with an editor, recording their voice, cutting them to the pictures. And particularly, actually, in that circumstance, the ability to change the words that you're laying in those circumstances is incredibly important because sometimes the picture editor will cut the sequence and your words don't fit. They either don't fit because they don't reflect the pictures properly or just the sequence of shots means you've got too many words, so you need to lose some words. So in those circumstances in particular, um, I will take my script in on a Braille display, on an on a electronic Braille display, and I can you know, edit it live 
and say, okay, let me retract that bit for you, take some words out, put some words in, uh, and then re-record that little bit of track. So the sort of live ability that I have now with Braille displays to edit that text and, and write, read it straight out loud without having to lug a piece, a laptop and a pair of headphones, just a, you know, a 40 cell display. I don't know, honestly, how people do it without that ability. Now, I do, I do know some blind journalists that do try and read scripts by, by listening to Jaws in their ear, having written their piece and listening to Batten speaking out loud. I couldn't do that. I mean, I marvel at them for, for being able to do that, but I simply couldn't do that. I couldn't get the kind of natural rhythms of the language doing that. I don't understand it. The other way I use Braille in my job <clears throat> is taking notes. So if I'm at a press conference or I'm just, you know, at an event or at a rally or something like that, and I'm jotting down a few quotes or, or, or tweeting, uh, again, again, that will be with an electronic Braille display. And the one thing I've realized over the years is that uh, you should always have a Braille display with a, um, with a lanyard because inevitably you have to take notes standing up. You know, <laughs> that's really hard if you can't hang it around, hang it around your neck. Um, but, you know, that makes you very mobile. So I use Braille a lot in that way. And the other way I use Braille... Um, is in my sort of leisure time, um, and this is a, this is what I was mentioning at the start. I found that I've sort of started to use a sort of hybrid way of way of reading. I mean, I use a lot of audio books generally, but I also read a lot of books, uh, particularly nonfiction stuff, on uh, Kindle and iBooks or, or books, as it's now just called. And I find myself using co a combination of you know voiceover but then reading the odd page here and there or one page in 10 on a Braille display. And I found particularly, and that's something that I've just developed, you know, for my own taste in the last few years. And I found it's improved my concentration. It's also reinforced, you know, spelling issues. If you're reading a book about a particular you know, subject area and there's especially jargon or words in it. And I've just, it's just, it's just worked really, really well. So I've got the, the speed of being able to crank through it with voiceover, as Fred said, you know, 300 words a minute, but just occasionally having the, the, that moment of slowing down and reading a couple of pages in Braille to improve concentration and, and, and get the spelling. Because I don't think I'm a particularly fast Braille reader, even though I've been reading all my life. I don't think I was ever particularly fast. There were, there were people at school who were naturally incredibly fast Braille readers, and I certainly wasn't one of those. Uh, and I'm one of those naughty people that only reads really with one hand. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've cherished Braille for a long, long time. Um, and... Uh, and uh, is an absolutely integral part of my sort of daily life. I think one thing that really struck me is your point about um, having a Braille display that you can easily carry around and having something on a lanyard. And I've definitely found the same thing um, when I've done presenting or perhaps having to take notes. Um, I remember doing an experiment at university where I had to it was actually a sociology type thing and I had to take notes whilst observing a group of people and move around I mean and you can't drag a table around with you so you've 
you know, you've got to have something attached to you, really. And it, it is a, a really great way of, of doing that, having a Braille display. And I think it's, one of, it's been one of the really good developments of the Braille display technology in the last few years, where we've got these hybrid devices now that not just connect, you know, you can't just, you don't just drive your iPhone from them, but they have sort of <clears throat> some sort of built-in notepad, scratch pad, very basic. And I use that all the time on my Braille displays that I have. You know, all the time switch into that kind of scratch pad type mode to jot stuff down. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's that's a really vital feature um, that I, I would say I use it for all the time and it's something I look for in a display if I'm buying one. It's now I have to have both. One thing that interests me about something Fred said was the use of Braille when lecturing at university. And I think this is really interesting and I, I would love to know more about that, how you, Fred, used Braille when you were teaching. Yes, I, I was going to say a bit of incidentally what Gary said rings very true. Uh, I was going to say a bit about that, but I, there's some a, a point I would like to make even before that. Uh, it's a historical point, really. You'll not be surprised for a historian to make a historical point. Um, we shouldn't forget how absolutely crucially invaluable Braille was to the development of the education of the blind from roughly 1867 through to, what, 1970s, 1980s. It was the only feasible way of getting uh, access to information. And I just don't know how my education could have worked out but for Braille when I met it at the age of 14. I was telling um, Matthew some time ago that, um, you know, I learned to do Braille mathematics before the age of the upward writing machine. You know, I, I was... Uh, it was about 10 years before the Perkins Brailler came along and we had to do algebra on an old-fashioned hand frame. And I was telling Matthew that uh, our teacher had devised a brilliant way of doing it. You, you, I don't know how many of you are familiar with a hand frame, but I won't go into great detail about it. But you wrote the first line of your uh, quadratic equation or your simultaneous equation or whatever you're doing, you wrote it on the first line of the page because you were embossing through the page you were embossing through a mirror image uh, you wrote it on the, the top line of the first side then you turned the, the, the paper over and you took the braille guide right down to the bottom and you wrote the second line of the equation on the last line of the second page and then you turned it over and you wrote the third line of the equation on the second line of the first page and it, I mean it sounds cumbersome and even clumsy, but it did actually work. And that that's that uh, huge importance that Braille, Louis Braille directly contributed to opening up access to information for blind people. It's, it's just amazing. And just to take one little other example before I get on to lecturing, never, never undervalue the ability to write to one another. Historically, before the coming of embossed type, Blind people used to write to one another with knotted string and they developed a code of so many knots for each letter or word. I don't know exactly how the code worked, but I mean, that must have been, it must have been awful. For them, of course, it was probably rather good because they felt they were conquering a problem. But when you look back at it, it, it kind of shows you the way we've come, how far we've come. But to come to lecturing, 
Bill was very crucial there. But as I've said, I mean, I, I, I really never got up much speed at Braille. And on a good day, I could read silently to myself at 90 words a minute. Um, and that meant that I could never use Braille to read a lecture. Not that I'm advocating reading lectures, but that just wasn't a possibility. And particularly when you had to quote a passage verbatim, uh, I couldn't read fast enough really to uh, to do it smoothly and intelligently and intelligibly. So I had to develop a way of dealing with that. And I taught myself Braille shorthand. Um, and that was a, a great advantage because it reduced uh, the number of characters that your finger, like Gary, I'm, 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 I read with two hands, but I'll read with only one finger of each hand. And um, the, the Braille shorthand reduced the amount of uh, characters that your your fingers had to cover. Um, and I lectured by making notes, roughly three words for each sentence. Uh, I've got a good memory, of course, which probably most of us are blind intellectuals, if we call ourselves that, we, we can call ourselves that. I think we, we've all got good memories, I think, so that helps. And um, I found that I was able to lecture fluently uh, using the uh, Braille notes in that form. Um, there was still the problem that if I wanted to quote any passage of more than a couple of sentences, really, um, it, it was very difficult to do it fluently and intelligibly. And I found that I had to rehearse these passages very carefully so that I practically almost memorized them. Uh, and then I was able to read them uh, uh, by tactile method and not stumble and you know, uh, blunder about so much that they became unintelligible. Uh, and that was how I got through lecturing. Um, I've, I still lecture, but I'm, I'm, I'm finding that as my brain slows down, um, I can't read shorthand notes with a, a, I can't, I can't sort of um, ingest them with the speed that I used to be able to do. And therefore, I have to do much more rehearsing so that I've, I've, got, the, I've got the notes you know, pretty um, clearly in my mind. And that's getting harder and harder as the, as the years go by, I have to admit. But I can still do it. Um, and like Gary, I, 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 don't, I can't imagine how anybody manages without that. I know that there have been uh, blind lecturers who did lecture without the use of Braille. They must have had great memories, I think. Um, and then there's this amazing, I just don't understand how anybody has something in their ear and uh, lectures fluently from getting a prompt in their ear. I, 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 I couldn't do that, but that's because I know I'm an old has-been, I expect. Um but as I say, now finally, that's, that's lecturing, but I also wanted to say something else. I've published three books as a historian. Um, I'm working on my fourth book now. Um, the first book that I published, my, my book on Keir Hardy, the British Labour leader, um, I wrote a biography of him. I did that before digital came along, and I wrote that in Braille and typed it up on a manual typewriter um, and just had to get sighted people to do the proofreading for me. Um, 
The second one was a life of my grandfather, and I wrote that with using digital technology in the 1990s. Um, and my third one, which was called Thomas Hardy and History, published in 2017, I wrote with technology. Um, I found that there are many pitfalls uh, in it. It's really, with the best will in the world, it's very, very difficult to get your text absolutely into a fair text form, you know, to be absolutely letter and word perfect. Very, very difficult indeed. Um, and I've had to rely with well, this, 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 this last book, Thomas Hardy in History. I had to rely on the support of a former student of mine who gave me a great deal of support in publishing off the the final text. But even so, a lot of mistakes crept in, and it's it's quite regrettable, really. Um, and probably if I had been more um, uh, more competent in Braille, I I could have used um, you know a, a, a visual display, a Braille display, a refreshable Braille display, uh, to better effect. I didn't. Uh, and one of the reasons I didn't do that, and this is the last point I want to make, is that since I left the university, I don't have technical support. And I think that it's often underestimated that those of us who are um, out here, out in, the, out in the sticks, you know, just working at our desk uh, privately and can't just pick up the phone to the technical department and say, could you come and sort this out for me? Because, you know, my refreshable Braille display is not reacting properly or or whatever. Um, you do get stuck in, in all sorts of complicated and ways I won't bore you with. I could tell you endless stories about the problems that arise with technology and Matthew, I'm sure, would uh, he's heard me lamenting about them endlessly, so he's probably having a wry smile at this point. But, you know, I think it's something that when we, when we celebrate digital technology, and nobody celebrates it more than me, but it does take a lot of um, technical backup if you're to use it safely and securely and to a higher level of accuracy. Yeah, I think these are all excellent points. And um, I mean, one thing I, I've kind of observed as a student is that the the more I move forward in academia, the more that, I, I mean, I'm using technology to access journals and books and things like that. But when I'm expected to present, I, I just need Braille because I can't use technology or certainly not without a refreshable braille display to deliver those kinds of presentations so i think you know what you said about lecturing um rings very true and it is hard if you're not a very fast braille reader and this is something i've been kind of forcing myself to work on is to become a really efficient braille reader and a very quick one which is, is i think a difficult thing to to do because it it i mean it depends on what age you learn braille i think as well and um, certainly if you're able to do that, that's very useful. But I, I liked your point about using Braille shorthand. And I think that's a really important skill. And that is something we've talked about at the Brailleists is, okay, do we, you know, do we run maybe some sessions on Braille shorthand to introduce people to that? And I think that's, it, 
still have a place now i think so it's something i've i've thought about over the years because there, there used there was once upon a time some sort of braille shorthand system i think you're right, Gary. It was, it was invented around about 1911, I think, by Stainsby, the man who invented the Stainsby writer. He, 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 invented, he invented the Stainsby writer to enable him to write shorthand quickly. And it went on from there. I'd be, you know, I've never seen a, a sort of a manual for it. And, and I've, I've, certainly, I've certainly over the years just developed my, you know, when I'm making notes for myself that don't need to be translated, you know, I have a sort of semi-system but I think that would there'd be you know I um my partner can you know she can write uh t-line shorthand uh and you know she can write as pretty much as quickly as you can speak and I would love to be able to do that even though grade two braille does mean you're a lot faster than someone taking down longhand you're still not quite I don't think at verbatim speed I think uh, because there was also once upon a time, I remember, I think maybe a Russian guy developed something called grade three Braille. Yes, we in England we had grade three Braille in my time, you know, when I was learning. I don't know if it's still in use at all, but there was definitely a grade three. So this is actually something that we, we are talking about as the Braillist is running some sessions on grade three, because we do know someone who knows grade three. So this is, you know, this is something we've wanted to to look at. So it's definitely on the cards for 2021, because I think, you know, particularly as we've been giving people hand frames, so slates and styluses and sending them out to people, this is something we really want to do is how can we maximise how people are using Braille? Is that a formal, I mean, it's obviously not a, a code that's accepted by the or the different braille authorities i'm guessing is it is it something just someone's invented basically i don't think it's accepted anymore oh matthew would be the right person to answer this yes it was in my time when, when i was learning braille as a, as a youth uh, grade three was you could borrow grade three books from the national library yeah i don't think you can under the new braille rules yeah, it, it, it's not in uh, general circulation anymore. It's not a recognised code. Um, that said, it's not an unrecognised code either. The Braille police are not going to come knocking if you start using grade three. And there is definitely a resurgence in Braille shorthand codes. There was, there was grade three, there was Braille shorthand, which is different to grade three. And actually, the, the Braille shorthand manual, if you want it, is available uh, from RNIB. They digitised it and it's still in print. Um, and there was another, there was an Australian code called Braille user oriented code. And there's, there's definitely some work, uh, nationally and internationally to revitalize those codes. Glad we have Matthew here to answer those, uh, ask, answer those kinds of questions. Could I pop in, pop another quick question in while, while we're on this point, because one thing, um, I've, uh, not struggled with but one thing I've not really grasped I have to say and this is a hell of an admission I know is that you know my transition to UEB for example has been incredibly haphazard and patchy and slow um, and you know I, I have started to embrace it because it's very difficult you know on braille displays and using Twitter clients and things if you if you don't know UEB to get symbols right but I, I, I haven't, I've tried to look for a, a good place to learn UEB properly as a, as a Braillist. 
and I and I can't say I've lighted on the right resource. So if anyone has tips for the correct resource to go to, I think that'd be incredibly useful for people like me as well. Yeah, so there's definitely a few things. So the RNIB has several um, briefer kind of, um, I don't know what to call them, guides, note lists, kind of more, more for existing Braille readers, you know, that will introduce the changes to you. There is also um, the UEB rules, if you want to delve really deep into it. Again, I'm going to call on Matthew. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm not on the panel officially, of course, but um, no, I, I should just um, the the book that I recommend, speaking personally now rather than with any particular hat on, um, the CNIB over in Canada um, created under the direction of Darlene Bogart, who chaired the UEB one of the UEB committees, and Phyllis Landon, who also chaired one of the UEB committees, um, a, a course called Upgrade to UEB, uh, and this was a, an American course uh upgrade from american braille to uh ueb rnib and ucaf adjusted it for a uk audience and i believe it's available for download at ucaf.org slash ueb however i will double check that and um, anybody who wants a copy of it email um help at braillists.org and i can i've got a copy of it and i can send it out um it's a free resource and very detailed and it will get you up to speed with the changes between seb and ueb and give you practice exercises and all of that sort of thing and i found it a very very useful resource oh thank you that's super helpful yeah that's definitely good to know and um I guess kind of moving kind of into this, a similar realm, talking more about future Braille usage. So I want to ask all of you, and I'm going to start with Simon again, how you think Braille will adapt to our changing needs as the blind community? So going forward, whether that be, you know, we're doing more stuff electronically or more kinds of devices that you think you'll, you'll see more of. Do you think Braille is something we still need as a community going forward? And if so, what would you like to see from it? Yeah, I think it's definitely still crucial and, and I think it always will be um, because I know there's talk, uh, people have said things about, you know, why it's necessary to teach younger kids Braille. Um, I've got a cousin who's seven who's just, who's just off, you know, losing his sight now. Um, and, you know, to think just the idea of not teaching a child from a young age Braille is ridiculous because, you know, children learn how to handwrite. So why shouldn't young children blind children get introduced to braille i was taught braille from the age of four and i think that's why i took to it really quickly um i'm quite proficient and i do i i use it a lot i read a lot of braille books still um and i think in terms of like spelling i've noticed a couple of friends that i've got who are blind and haven't taken to braille their spelling isn't as good as people who read it and write it more often and i think because of that it's it is definitely something that needs to continue. Uh, and I do think, obviously, technology is progressing. Because um, even in terms of if you're thinking about labels, um, medicine, a lot of medicine has braille labeling on it. And, the, you know, there's the argument that technology apps like seeing AI and things like that. And, yeah, they are useful. I mean, I can't say I'm the best with seeing AI. Um, I'm rubbish with it. But and apps like that are great. They are useful. But to take braille off medication or to argue that it's it's not essential on packaging, um, is just I, I just think it's ridiculous because it is it's I think it's something that people will always need um, because you know you need that tactile feedback and it's just it's just another another way of accessing information 
um, where, like I said, I mean, people like me who struggle with apps like Seeing AI, um, you know, if you were to take the Braille off medicine packaging, I'd struggle because, you know, until I take to it, you still need that feedback. So I think for that reason, just because technology is obviously progressing, um, I do think Braille still should be emphasised and Braille books still should be a thing and it should just, it should be encouraged. Right. And I think that's an excellent point that, you know, we can talk about tech and its usefulness and that's very true, but one doesn't have to stop the other from also being useful. So, you know, you can have your technology, but that doesn't mean we should take Braille away. And I actually really strongly agree about medications. I mean, by the time I've got my phone out my pocket and I've opened my app and I've like, even if I was fairly quick using the app, I mean, I could have read the name of the medicine and, you know, the, how many milligrams it is in way less time. And I can certainly read it through the packet as well. If it's in a, a bag, then I can often feel the Braille through that, which is quite convenient too. I completely agree with that. Um, the med, I think the medicine labelling has been a real, one of those really big step forward, uh, steps forward for us, particularly because, you know, it's all done in grade one. So it opens up that kind of um, op- opportunity to, for people who aren't so, um, you know, confident with Braille to, to be able to identify things that really matter to them, you know, taking the right pill at the right, the right time of day, you know, the learning curve for being able to do that independently with grade one Braille on medication is a, I think is a, a is a, an absolutely huge step forward. And I, and I agree, you know, also that these low tech solutions are incredibly useful uh, and I take advantage a lot of, I mean, I've still got one of those old, old Dymo tape Braille labelers. Um, and, you know, I, like I'm sure a lot of people do, I, you know, I, the, the, the spice jars in my cupboard in my kitchen are labeled in Braille just because, sure, I could do it with seeing AI, but that's so much more hassle than just running your finger across it. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I mean, even in terms of you've got things like RNIP pen friend and it's great. Um, I have a pen friend uh, and for certain things it is great, especially like, you know, washable labels and things like that. But who's going to walk around a kitchen carrying that when you've just got <laughs> Braille labels on it? I've, I've marked up my um, spice jars with Braille labels as well and they do last. And you could just put the refills into the same jar so you don't even have to relabel things. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It just, it's so much. I know, that, I mean, I've used the other pen friend labels on the jars and they just sort of, come off after a while I think that's that's a really great point and I you know it's it's difficult at how we're using braille and actually that it doesn't have to be oh you know you read 300 books a year in braille or whatever I mean maybe you do I mean that's that's great too but you know it, it can just be using it for labeling in your kitchen I think one thing I always stress to people is that that's as much of a valid use of braille and is still really really important and um I mean I, I guess like my you know the real thing I want to kind of delve into is how do you envision braille will change or will braille change to meet the needs of the blind community and to meet the needs of of us using greater technologies good that bringing us back to the question I, I thought we were beginning to get a bit cozy there <laughs> as braille users we we, we there's a great danger that you know we we, we, we get into this common uh, conversation that's fascinating uh, for us. But, you know, 
I'm not entirely confident about the future of Braille. I, it's, I think it's got a future. I'm, I'd be prepared to make an argument that it's got a future. But I think the big problems that we really need to look at, about 20 years ago, I was asked to uh, talk to a group of compu blind computer users in Leamington Spa near where I live. They were all over 70. Uh, they were very, very sharp, very competent in their use of technology. And I was talking to them about how I use technology, and I was talking about the way I use auxiliary Braille. And I got a wee bit evangelical and started to sort of chat them about how, how useful they would find auxiliary Braille. And I met a wall of resistance. I, I, mean, I can't describe to you how negative they were about the Braille. They just did not want to know. They couldn't see the point, And I made all the points, you know, that we've been making about spelling and formatting and labeling and keeping lists and so forth. But no, no, absolutely not. They wouldn't have it. And I think we need to think, uh, I, I would like, to think that there are people somewhere who are actually doing serious scientific work on the, 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 the problems of reading Braille and the problems of learning it, reading it, developing a, a, a rapidity in it and so forth. I went to the bicentenary of Louis Braille conference in Paris and I think it was about 2004 or thereabouts. And uh, I was on a panel like this and uh, being, you know, sort of um, a irritating person who raises difficult questions. <laughs> I, was, I was asking various questions, you know, like if you really were a person that went blind, say, at the age of 40 and you had to keep going in your career, would you really take the time out to learn Braille if, you know, given the, the, other, the other possibilities that there are? And it was a fairly evangelical meeting, as you could imagine, and uh, they weren't too pleased with me asking these kinds of awkward questions. But, and this is the last point I wanted to come to, there was a very interesting lady, I meant to look up her name for this conversation, and I just didn't get time to do it today. But um, a very interesting lady, an American lady, um, who was a long-standing expert on the teaching of Braille, and I mean, when I say a long-standing expert, a serious academic, and um, she she was in the audience in my session, and she got up and said that uh, she would like to see a lot more research done on why reading speeds vary so much. And my heart went out to her. I thought that's absolutely what, what we need to know, because it it doesn't. I mean, it varies a bit with the age you learn that at, but I mean, my wife learned it at the age of six, and she's not much quicker at Braille reader than I am. Whereas at this bicentenary conference, there was a Spanish uh, news presenter on television uh, who'd learned Braille at 14, the same age as me, and she could just take it off the Braille embosser, get it plunked down in front of her. They showed us film of her doing it. Braille and Bosser just whipped it out, they stuck it down in front of her and she just zip, 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 read through it, you know. It's like like a, like a dose of salt. It was just amazing. Now, you know, does anybody know why these these differences exist? And 
given that they exist, does anybody have any scientific knowledge about how you get a person from my level of when I'm my best at 90 words a minute, how you get them up to say, I'm not, I want to read it, well, I would like to read it 300 words a minute, but 150 would do me. Does anybody know how that's done? I, I, Matthew, and you, you people on the, the, the Braille Foundation are probably much more into this than I am, but I just have a very strong sceptical doubt that nobody knows and that still nobody much cares. Well, this is actually, um, I think it's fair to say, one of my, I don't know if I say obsessions, but certainly my areas of academic interest and something that kind of took me during the um, International Council on English Braille General Assembly was there was some research done into um, le learning Braille and what really struck me is is that there isn't enough actually and this is something I was going on and on about all week to oh, Matthew who had to listen to me going on about it but it is something that I think um, is important and, and when we look to the future it's vital because one thing that's really important is teachers and without getting bogged down in it is teaching theory and so when you become a teacher of sighted students you learn a lot about teaching theory and how students learn and why they learn a certain way you know why certain reading programs exist and there isn't actually the same for blind children that there's research that says blind people are slower at reading braille but I think that that has the temptations then become a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you say blind people are slower then you never actually push a blind person to get quick at reading and not all blind people are slow at reading braille so is it the truth and I I mean I'm absolutely with you on this and well maybe I'll get accepted into a PhD program and if I do maybe I'll research this <laughs> so that depends on a on my academic success, I think, but it is something that I agree, certainly from my perspective, when we look towards the future, we, we need answers to those kinds of questions. When I was at school, we, they actually put a stopwatch on us to time us, um, uh, which was, I mean, I'm not sure that's a great, a great way of doing it, but there was, you know, and the variation was, was large, you know, the your average Braille, and they, they used to talk about in terms of pages in those days, in, in the sort of standard style Braille book, you know, people were sort of in the sort of mid to late 20s, early 30s per hour pages. But there, there were some incredible people who were at 60 pages an hour, you know, and there was no explanation about why why that difference occurred or, or what to do about it other than try harder. <laughs> told me at my blind school when I went there at the age of 14, I'd already, my home teacher had taught me Braille. I now, looking back on it, think he wasn't a very good teacher, but he did get me started. And um, the, 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 the English teacher came up to me and said, I hear that you know Braille already read, reading Braille already read. And I said, yes. So he said, read me this read me a page from this book, so he plonked the book down in front of me, and I slowly read along. And he said, yep, that's a good start. He said, and he, he felt me, he was blind, and he felt my hands to make sure that I was keeping my hand flat and so forth. He said, that's a good start. He said, he said you'll get quicker. He said, if you read for an hour every night, private reading, uh, you'll get quicker. And so I took that seriously, and I did, and I slowly got a bit quicker. <laughs> it was... 
it was 60 words a minute, you know, for a long time. And it wasn't until I went to university and they really had gunpowder under my tail that I began to get up to about 90 words a minute. <laughs> and that's no use for, you know, in assume, rapidly assuming a great deal of literature. Um, so, you know, I... I even even in those days, you know, when Braille was much closer to its heyday than it is now, um, I, I, there just didn't seem to be any any systematic knowledge or scientific way of understanding these things. And that lady I was talking about, who um, the American academic, she actually wrote to me after the bicentennial, and she said. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, in the the real uh, community here, academic community here in America. She said, I'd like you to write me an article and I'll see if I can get it published, putting forward some of your sort of sceptical thoughts. So I did that. <laughs> it came back rejected <laughs> on the grounds that it was too polemical. <laughs> I mean, you know... There's such a coziness around it. It really makes me angry. Well, it used to make me angry. It doesn't make me angry enough. I'm too old to get angry. But um, it did make me angry. In terms of the future, you mentioned the future, Holly. I'm, I am very excited by the various uh, bits of research that are going on in different places around the world into how you might get you know, page size electronic Braille. In a, in, a, in a sort of format that is useful. I mean, I know there are some, you know, big, hefty machines that do it now, which, you know, you'd have to sit at on a desk. But, you know, something the size of a, an iPad that just gives you, you know, gives you that page experience uh, of being able to uh, read Braille like that. And there, I know people are working on those sorts of technologies, you know, beyond the piezo cell and, and those sorts of things and, and kind of polymers and other things, aren't they? That would really, really excite me being able to have something like that. Yeah, I think it would, because it would defeat the whole, con you know, people have their pros and cons about Braille, one being obviously ha having books and it being quite cumbersome. So if you could get something like that, it would kind of give you the added benefit of experiencing a page, the size of a page, but doing it with technology. Because, yeah, I mean, you can't deny it, Braille books are heavy. Um, and they are a pain to carry around. Um, so, yeah, that would be kind of cool. But it's interesting because I was talking to someone else um, who is blind and she, she absolutely hates Braille, just doesn't like it at all, hasn't taken to it. Um, and I was talking to her and she said, my issue with it was actually grade two. I was fine with grade one. And I didn't like grade two because she said she thinks that grade two is the reason she struggles now with spelling in the first place. Whereas if it had just been grade one, um she thinks her spelling would have been better today, which is an interesting thought because it is true. I mean, you have your abbreviations and yes, I guess arguably we'd read even slower with just grade one, no grade two. And there are, of course, benefits to grade two. I use it all the time, but it's an interesting point because obviously it does affect your spelling. And I mean, looking at my own experiences, um, I teach Arabic Braille. Now, whether, the, whether there is a grade two in Arabic Braille, I don't know. But, you know, I have my Arabic Braille and it's just one grade and it's letter by letter and I teach it. And to be honest, I don't think I'm much slower with that grade of Arabic Braille reading it than I am with my English grade two. Obviously, I'm not going to be as because you know um, efficient with it. Having said that, I learned Arabic Braille when I was 10. 
Um, I've been teaching it for the last three years, but I learned it when I was 10. And, you know, as I said, it's one grade and it's letter by letter. There's no abbreviations in it. And I, I don't think it makes me any slower. I think I am still as proficient. So it's an interesting thought whether people would object less to it if it was just the grade one. Would, would that just simplify it? That's a very radical and provoking and interesting point. I went to a conference once, uh, an international blind conference, and I sat down with a, a friend of mine, who, a guy called Tom Parker, um, Gary might remember him. Um, and uh, he, he, he didn't read Braille very fast or much. I mean, he could read it, but he wasn't proficient at it. And they handed out the agenda in Braille for us. And um, so he asked me to read it out to him. And I started reading and I was about halfway down the page before I realised it was in grade one. I just hadn't noticed. That's interesting because if I if you give me grade one now, um, I'm really slow. I can't. I'm very very slow with grade one, and I think that's just lack of use, purely lack of use. Um, so that's that's interesting. But I mean, I think and it is important to have that feedback of learning a language. I remember um, when I was at Coventry Uni, I did a module and. And it was a Spanish module and I'd never really learned Spanish at all. And I failed. At, well, I didn't fail. They had to kind of um, just give me a concession. But because I was learning purely through kind of listening and speaking, I, I wasn't given any written material. So when it came to dictating in the exam, I had no idea how to spell. So I, I spelled all the words wrong because I had no idea how any of the words were spelled. I was just going by, you know, phonetically how I thought they were spelled. Um, and I, I think that did take away from the language. One of the things that um, Simon and Fred have mentioned, which has is, is popped a thought into my mind, is, is coming across uh, other blind people who are very hostile to Braille. Uh, and I've done that as well. I come across people who are hostile, you know, speech warriors kind of thing. Um, and it struck me, I wonder, because quite a lot of Braillists, and I think, and I've done this myself in the past, have said Braille is a literary issue, a literacy issue. If you can't read Braille, you're illiterate. And I've and I, I've wondered hearing some hostile, you know, the hostility sometimes get back. Are we? Do we think that, or is that, or is that the way to really put people off learning Braille? <laughs> I don't know, but it is a thing that Brailleists say, isn't it? It is. Yeah, exactly. It's baloney, in my opinion. <laughs> it's extremely arrogant as well. I mean, I, I, I mean, I literally criticism simply using um, uh, digital technology, and and I tell you, I prefer a, a text read out and synthesised speech to a human reader reading it to me, because a human reader inevitably puts a certain spin on the text, um, you know, sound of their voice, etc in all sorts of ways, whereas synthesized speech gives you a much more neutral, objective understanding of the text. Um, and I, I, I think some, there, are some, there are some points that are well made. For instance, I, I, I wouldn't for one minute contest that a child, a totally blind child, should be taught Braille. I'm not so sure that a child who has enough partial sight to be able to read print with some fluency, I'm not at all sure that they should be taught Braille. Uh, especially if they're resisting it, but certainly a totally blind child. Um, 
I, I've, I buy some of the argument that, you know, constructing paragraphs and so on, it's, it's probably easier to teach if it is in Braille. But it's not impossible. And people manage without Braille for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> and I simply, uh, I simply don't buy the argument that you have, you're not literate if you can't read Braille. Well, I think it's definitely something that we have to approach with um, compassion and wanting to support people to learn. And I hate to wrap this up. This has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm definitely here for these controversial questions because I think it's the only way as a community, um, and I, I suppose I'm here for controversy in general, but it's the only way as a community that we can kind of scrutinize what we do a bit more and actually say okay how can we do better um I just kind of want to finish by saying thank you to the three of you for joining and for speaking to us and really sharing your views and how braille has been important to you but also kind of asking these questions and you know provoking this kind of conversation um because it's been extremely beneficial I think for everyone who's been able to attend thank you chief up to the meeting it's lovely it's been a pleasure thanks thank you for the invite yes gary o'donoghue washington correspondent at the bbc dr fred reed professor emeritus of history at the university of warwick and saima akhtar a recent graduate in english and creative writing from birmingham city university bringing to a close this episode of brailcast it was recorded in front of a live audience on the evening of the 4th of january 2021 hosted by holly scott gardner and made possible thanks to a grant from the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information about the Trust, you can visit wcmt.org.uk and for more information about the Braillists Foundation who organised this event, you can visit braillists.org and in particular, braillists.org slash events where you can find out about future events being held by the Braillists Foundation including Braille for Beginners starting on Monday the 11th of January at 7pm and Braille for Academic and Career Development starting on Tuesday the 12th of January at 7.30pm. I've been Matthew Horsepool. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, bye for now.